It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ every weekday morning from our studio on the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. It's a Monday, and uh, I get to speak about Jesus Christ today. So, hey, this is the day the Lord has made. How could Eric not rejoice and be glad in it? It's such a, a season of nonsense in our world. <laughs> I know we all feel that. And it's a, it's a very unique thing for the Christian because the way we respond to the nonsense is very different than the world around us. Because we have a foundation. It's like the difference between being built on sand and being built on rock. Winds and rains blow on both. However, the house that is built on rock withstands it and doesn't crumple. You see, we have Jesus as a cornerstone, as a foundation, which means we can actually stand and do things that the world can't even fathom. And that is things like rejoice, leap for joy praise and worship, sing songs of thanksgiving in the midst of an hour which is rather odd and strange. To me, the secret is a singular thing. It's Jesus Christ. And for all of the mysteries of my life, for all the challenges of my life, there is one solution, and it's Jesus. And so I love talking about Jesus because the application of Jesus is so thick and dense. And so that's what I want to talk about today. And I actually feel it is very appropriate for the times in which we live to meditate upon the wonder, the majesty of who this man was and is. So the name of this little series I'm going to go through on Mondays, I always like to go through a four part series in Daily Thunder, in the podcast, you're going to get just the first piece. If you'd like to take the other three pieces and take them deeper, uh, you, you go to ellersley.com forward slash daily, and then you can unpack the rest of it. So hope, I, I really hope you get into this to the point where it's just like, oh, I have to hear the other three pieces. But you know what? Even if all you hear is this first piece, I think it's going to be encouraging for you. So this is called The Language of God, as is the whole series. And I have a subtitle. Listen to this. It's a study in the shocking condescension of Jesus Christ. Mm. So I, I'm excited even before we get going. Just by the title, I love titles. If, you, if you've hung around Eric Ludi, you know that I always love titles. I love my subtitles. They stir me. If, if, the, if, the sub, if the title and the subtitle aren't stirring me, then they stink and I want to get a new one. And so I like this one. So the language of God... Does God speak a certain language? You ever had that thought? Like when we get to heaven, what language are we going to speak? So there are certain Jews that are very convinced that in heaven we are going to speak Hebrew. And I think they have a good argument. In other words, some people would say, well, Hebrew is the language of God. It is so brilliant. It is so beautiful. It is so profound. The glory of God is knit into it. It's intrinsic in its wiring. And I wouldn't even argue that. I think it is quite amazing. And uh, so then others are going to say, no, 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 no. It's not going to be Hebrew. It's going to be Koine Greek. Obviously, the Holy Spirit is going to carry along the writers of the New Testament. And he's going to express the grand majesty of the gospel in Koine Greek. So obviously, we're going to speak in Koine Greek. And then there's some that are going to say, no, no, no. It's going to be the bridge language of our day. And since Jesus is going to come back any day now, it's going to be English. It's the most common language. Of course, we're going to all get up there and understand each other because we're going to speak a language we all know. I think that's mainly American people that probably come to that conclusion. However, 
since I'm not going to uh, have the answer for that question, I know some of you are disappointed. Like, Eric, hey, you don't leave us hanging here. I do have an answer, though. What language does God speak? I want you to brace yourself for this because it's profound. I don't know if in heaven we're going to speak Hebrew. I don't know if in heaven we're going to speak Koine Greek, and I don't know in heaven if we're going to speak English. But I do know a language we will speak in heaven because heaven speaks this language, whether it's in heaven or it comes to earth, and that is humility. Humility is the language of heaven. Isn't that an interesting thought? It's like we do know the language God speaks. He speaks humility. In every situation in all of earth's history, he has always spoken in this language. Now, what's interesting is the native language of this earth isn't humility. It's arrogance, it's pride, it's self-centeredness. And so as a result, you see immediately there's a distinction between God and man. You see, God in his very wiring, in the very way that he is put together, is humble. We have gone astray and we have left and departed from the way that God intended us to be, which is what the fall of man is. It's what sin has ultimately created is these monsters of selfishness. And so as a result, when you, when you ponder this fact that God is going to condescend and come to this earth and be born as a baby, it astounds us because it's not the way we would save the world. If we were in charge of saving the world, we would do it a very different way because we are wired a different way. And so that's why this meditation on who Jesus is is just so profound. So let's uh, sort of traverse through it. First of all, the Bible is a book of twos. And if you've heard me teach in all of my discipleship, if you come out to Ellerslie, I'm going to walk you through twos all throughout the Bible. There are twos. And some people start, have started to make fun of me for always mentioning this, but I'm going to keep doing it till the cows come home, I think, because it's just the way discipleship works. If you don't understand this, then you don't fully understand the grandeur of the gospel. See, everything in the Bible, even the Bible itself is broken up into twos. There's a first and a second. I know that sounds very obvious, but it's profound. We are all born in a first condition. We are born in sin. We are born being ruled and controlled by the power of the flesh. And unless we are born again, unless we become a second, we cannot see the kingdom of heaven. And so as a result, it is important, not just that we understand twos, but that we become a two. We become a second born. The twice born, the born again ones are the ones that actually inherit the kingdom of heaven. They're the ones that enter into Christ by faith. So if you look at this Bible, it's broken up into twos. And so in the first, you're going to have Hebrew. In the second, you're going to have Koine Greek. Now, for those of you that are really smart, you're going to say, hey, there's also Aramaic in there. And I'm not going to argue that. There is a bit of Aramaic in the book of Daniel. However, overall, you could divide up the Bible into two languages, Hebrew and Koine Greek. And these languages couldn't be further apart from each other as far as their splendor. Hebrew, if you study it, is so magnificent that it strikes awe in the reader. Everything about the language is profound. The, the language itself, like say the lettering in it, the alphabet for the, the Hebrew language, Aleph Bet, for instance, is, is where it's going to start. And we're going to ultimately get our alphabet out of that. But alf, Aleph Bet, even the letters themselves, like Aleph, it's more than just a letter. Like if I asked you, what is A? You would say, it's, it's A. Yeah, that's right. It doesn't contain any information with it. It just has sounds that go with it. So we could say, well, A says A or A or A. You'd be correct. But in the Hebrew language, the, the letter itself is a symbol of something. It actually has meaning to it. 
And it's an alphanumeric language, which means it doesn't just have alphabetic powers, you know, to help us spell words, but it also has a numeric value of one. And so what you see is this, this language is knit together with such profundity that it reveals God even in its structure. It's, it's, it's quite exciting and quite amazing and mesmerizing to get into, and it can actually be somewhat dangerous because it can distract you from the whole point of it. What is the point of the Hebrew? Well, to ultimately lead you to the second, to lead you to the second man. His name is Jesus. He's the fulfillment of all of that. The second, though, the second language that is going to be exhibited in, the, in this second piece of Scripture, this New Testament, is made up of Koine Greek, which all the compliments that I've given to the Hebrew, you can strip them all away, and basically what you end up with is a dog's language known as the Koine Greek. There's nothing impressive about it. It is... It's just the common man's language. It's simple. It's, it's not profound. And yet, isn't that an amazing thought to think that here you have this profound language that has all the questions in it, everything that the Jewish people still to this day are asking, how is this going to work? Who is this talking about? It's a mystery. But it's all solved in a very simple way in the Koine Greek of all languages. And that's God's way. Again, what language does God speak? He speaks with humility. So the Hebrew language, it's exceptional, it's unusual, it's rare, it's exclusive, and it's refined. Boy, what a list. So if I was to put up a similar slide for the Koine Greek, it would be everything that is not on that list. It's common. That's actually what Koine means. Common. It's the common man's language, and the, it's the Gentile's language to boot. I mean, just imagine how hard this would be for the Jews. This is the word of God. God is holy, holy, holy. He can't speak through something like that, a language of the dogs. And yet God is going to deliberately, by his Holy Spirit, carry along the writers of the New Testament to write down this grand triumphant truth of the gospel in and through this language. This is not on accident. This is very much on purpose. And it's revealing God in the process. So this is a meditation on the Hebrew language, the language in which this grand mystery of God's word was captured. God wrote the words of the Ten Commandments in Hebrew, the set-apart language, a language that itself was supernatural, otherly, brilliant, profound, high, and holy. It was in this language of Hebrew that God revealed his holy, holy holiness, his blazing perfection and righteousness, his spotless purity, and his heavenly truthfulness. I mean, you have to, you have to get along with the Jews here and say, yep, this is an important language. This is profound. This is valuable. The proper name of God was revealed in this language, and the people of Israel would not dare speak this awe-striking name out loud, nor even write it for fear of blaspheming it and incurring the wrath of God. God spoke this holy name to his people in Hebrew. Hebrew was the chosen linguistic carrying device for his splendor, a language befitting his majesty. It was a chosen language, a language that only the people of Israel knew. And therefore, the word of God was kept from the nations of the earth who lived ignorantly of its mystery, its profundity, and its awesome promises, truths, and revelations. So, I mean, I think all of us can jump on board and say, wow, this first language is something very, very special. Why would God depart from using this language to reveal the grand triumph of the gospel. I mean, that's just amazing. So there's a simple truth that you'll see unfold throughout the Bible. And that is you have first and seconds, and the second one always seems to look weaker. 
So all throughout the Bible, you're going to see this. Cain, Abel, you're going to have Ishmael, Isaac, you're going to have Esau, Jacob. I mean, Esau, Jacob is one of the classic pictures of this. Esau is this hunter. I always ask the students, like, okay, we have the hairy hunter over here. And then we have this guy who's described, Jacob is described as the plain man dwelling in tents. Okay, have you ever heard a worse description of a human? So you have the hairy hunter and the plain man dwelling in tents. I always ask the, the ladies, which one do you want to marry? And it's funny because then some lady will yell out and she'll say, how hairy. <laughs> but the second always looks weaker at first blush. And yet God is going to choose the second. In each of these situations, you're going to recognize that the favor of God is going to come upon the second, the one that appears weaker. God language. You see, God is purposely declaring something to us. And so the second always looks weaker. Listen to this. But the second holds the answer. So I want you to think about the Bible because that's ultimately my point here. Jesus is going to condescend. He's going to humble himself to reveal the grand nature of Almighty God. And in so doing, he is going to clothe himself as a baby. Well, think about the entire truth about him coming as a baby. It's clothed in Koine Greek. He is going to clothe them. So he's consistent in every part of the storyline to show something. When God comes to reveal himself, what, what does he want us to catch? Basically, he's smacking us upside the face and saying, I'm not like you. You see, humility is the chief attribute that allows grace to come flooding into your life. And so until some, someone humbles themselves, they cannot access the kingdom of heaven. You enter into the kingdom of heaven in and through this avenue of humbling yourself, becoming as a little child and believing upon him. And so this whole idea of the expression of Jesus in and through this humble delivery is profound. So let's look at the questions found in the first. The Hebrew has all sorts of questions that are going to arise. Here's just a few. Who is this one who will be born of a virgin in the town of Bethlehem? whose goings forth are from of old and everlasting, and who will be Emmanuel, God with us? Who is this one who will be betrayed by a friend, who will bear our iniquities, whose garments will be parted, whose hands and feet will be pierced? So there's all sorts of mystery in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew. And yet, every single one of those questions, where is it answered? It's actually answered in the New Testament. It's answered in the Koine Greek. It's answered in the humble language. So the answer found in the second. And this is just a great illustration of it. You have in Acts 8, 34 through 35, you have this Ethiopian Jew who is going to be in the wilderness, which is an incredible statement about the Jewish people, right? They're in the, in the wilderness, and they, they want to enter this land of promise. They want the promise of God. They want the, this Messiah. And so they have the text, but they don't understand it. What do they need? They need an interpretive key. They need something to go into that mystery and turn the key. Well, the something is very, very simple, and it's very, very humble. So I'll just read this. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee, of whom speaks the prophet this? So he's just read through the words of Isaiah 53. And when, you, when we read it as Christians that know the New Testament, we're like, well, that's obvious. It's talking about Jesus. But they can't see it. Because they, you need the second, you need the Koine Greek to actually be able to unlock the mystery of the Hebrew. So he asks, of himself or of some other man? Who is this speaking of? Then Philip opened his mouth 
and began at the same scripture and preached unto him, Jesus. There's the answer. There's the answer to your riddles too. The great complexities of life are solved with a very simple solution. His name is Jesus. Highness meets lowness. That's the essence of the Bible. That's the essence of the man who fulfills the Bible. The Bible on two legs, Jesus. Highness meets lowness. Highness, 1 Chronicles 29.1. Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heaven and in the earth is thine. Thine is the kingdom, O Lord, and thou art exalted as head above all. Okay. God, there's so many great scriptures of highness where we look at the grandeur, the majesty, the glowing wonder of who this God is, and to recognize that that's Jesus, that he's the creator of the heavens and the earth. He is, he is the all in all of God Almighty. He is the essence and the expression, the visible representation of an invisible God. I mean, this is, this is amazing. This is highness. But he is going to humble himself to participate with this lowness. So here's a great scripture about lowness, Psalm 53, 2 through 3. God looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand who seek God. Every one of them is turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. Hey, God, just throw this, this lot out. Why would he put up with us? Instead, he is going to, from his highest state, come and condescend and accept our lowest state. And he is going to become like us so that he can rescue us. A great word in the Greek, sparganao. And it means to wrap in swaddling clothes. And of course, if you know the Christmas story, you recognize that term, right? You may not know the Greek, but you know the idea. So this is omnipotence wrapped in weakness. Luke 2, 11 through 12. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. Stop. This shall be a sign unto you. What would be a sign unto us that God has come? I mean, we could come up with all sorts of great ideas of what would be a sign to us. But remember what language this God speaks in every circumstance, every situation. He speaks the language of humility. So what is the sign that the King of Kings has arrived on this earth? This is amazing. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. A manger, by the way, is a feeding trough. You will find the king of all kings, the lord of all lords, majesty on high, and he will be wrapped in swaddling clothes. He will be wrapped in peasantry, lying in a feeding trough. Wow, that is extraordinary. God come to earth, as a little lamb, <laughs> a little lamb. I mean, everything about even the wrapped in swaddling cloths, those same cloths are what you would wrap the sacrificial lambs in. It's amazing. So where the highness of God and the weakness of humanity intersect, God is coming to this earth, but he's not coming as a triumphant warrior. He's coming as a little lamb of sacrifice. God setting aside his almighty godness, God forsaking his fiery presence and his cloud of glory. God relinquishing the continual worship of the angelic multitudes. God purposely trading his almighty lion's mane for a lamb's woolly stature. God, who still was 100% God and knew that he was God and was unabashed by the fact that he was God, gave up his reputation as the great I am and became one of no reputation. Whoa, 
God, the master of worlds, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, took on the form of a bondservant and allowed his ear to be pierced by his father in heaven that he would be bound to do nothing of his own will. God condescended to take on the swaddling clothes of humanity and is laid in a feeding trough as food for the starving multitudes. God, functioning in the capacity of a mere man, unrecognizable as God, but God nonetheless, humbled himself even further by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the horrifying and gruesome death of the cross. God tasted the penalty of sin, the wrath of God, and the dreadful judgment of almighty righteousness. I mean, it's hard for us to comprehend this. Listen, Jesus, like the Bible, was wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a feeding trough. You know that the Word of God in text and the Word of God in flesh carry the same attributes? You see, the Bible is going to be wrapped in swaddling clothes, the Koine Greek. God is going to say that clothing right there. And a Jew can hardly fathom it. And it's like, no, 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 no. You can't be wrapped in the Koine Greek. I mean, that's a Gentile's language. That's the language of dogs. That's the common language. Yeah, but everyone on earth can hear it then. Jesus, too, was wrapped in the... Koine Greek, if you want to say it that way, he was wrapped in the common man's body so that all the world could know and all the world could be saved. Oh, that's good, guys. I don't know if you're as excited as I am about this, but the language of God, I don't care what we speak in heaven. I figure God will deal with that at the time and whatever it is, he'll help me learn it, right? But I do know that humility will be spoken there. The Arneon. So this is a great Greek word. You know what it translates to? The little lamb. We typically translate it as just lamb, but it means like the fluffy little lamb, sort of like that baby lamb. This is what Jesus is going to become. So let's finish with this meditation. John 1, 29. Remember what John the Baptist is going to say when he, he sees this lamb of God coming. Behold the lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. But what word that is for lamb of God is Arneon. So how about this? Behold the little lamb of God. Behold the humble offering of Jehovah. Behold the almighty majesty that has humbled himself to be clothed in Koine Greek commonness. Amazing. Which takes away the sin of the world. I love Jesus. I love his ways. I love his manner. It's different than mine. It's different than the world's. But Lord, I want to be changed to live and to think like you do. And I think that's the prayer for all of us. Before we close, I just want to give a little media piece introduction to Ellerslie Online, which I think is starting in right around a week from now. And so any of you that are just hungry to get the training at Ellerslie, but maybe because of COVID, you can't get into the United States, or maybe you've always dreamed of coming, you don't have the time, you don't have the resource to be able to pull it off, consider uh, being a part of our Ellerslie Online training. It's donation only this, this year. And so I just want you to take advantage of it, if at all possible. God's blessings. This Ellerslie online training is pithy, powerful, and rich. It takes all this great material from our five-week training, and even though it's simplified in its version, in other words, when you're out here, you're getting like five hours a day, whereas you're maybe gonna get 30 to 45 minutes a day in our online training, it's something accessible that very few people outside of this would have access to this type of training. So if this is something that is moving you, take advantage of the Ellerslie online special edition. 
Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder is streamed daily, Monday through Friday, from our studio in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekend church service is delivered live and streamed at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Join us at live.ellersley.com. Note that our live weekday in-person version of Daily Thunder is scheduled to resume this upcoming June in conjunction with our training season. Learn more at ellersley.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you.